Comics. Comics. Welcome to ORP, otherwise known as Omen Revelations Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Nunley. And I'm your co-host, uh, Steve Sellers. On ORP, we like to talk about geek stuff, pop culture, including movies and TV series, as well as comic books and comic characters. Uh, but that's not all, is it, Mike? No, it's not, Steve. We're also writers for Omen, Omen Comics and Revelation Comics. So we like to talk about both writing and our comics. So podcast and chill with us. Today, Steve and I are going to be doing the classic James Bond that started it all, Sean Connery. However, we are not going to cover all seven of, of uh, his James Bond films. Um, we're just going to talk about his first four movies that he made between 1962 and 1965. Uh, Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, and Thunderball. We apologize in advance for all of you diehards out there if we don't cover your favorite films, but we just can't spend the next five months talking about James Bond. Um, but before we get started, uh, Sean Connery was actually Steve's pick uh, for his favorite uh, James Bond. Uh, not that I'm not a fan as well. Uh, so I was thinking maybe uh, you could tell us why Sean Connery is your favorite. And uh, when did you first become a fan, Steve? Uh, sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, my introduction to Bond was actually around the tail end of the Roger Moore era with View to a Kill. So by then it was pretty much him and Connery. Um, I did end up seeing ne uh, Never Say Never Again not long after that. So at the time I didn't realize it was basically a remake of Thunderball. <laughs> um, that eventually led me back to the early Bond films like Dr. No. And that's really when I started to get really sold on Sean Connery. The thing with Connery is that he pretty much defined the classic movie Bond persona that stuck until the end of Pierce Brosnan's era. We've gotten used to Craig's Bond as the rugged action hero, and Connery had his share of fistfights too, but Connery was suave, stylish, and he approached the role with a right touch of, of class. And he had to love some of the one-liners he would toss out after killing some dude who was after him. Um, at his best, Connery always seemed like he was having a good time being a super spy, and the viewer was having fun along with him. Uh, there were elements that could be goofy and ridiculous, sure. Austin Powers made fun of a lot of those things, but it worked for those early films. It sounds like we came to Sean Connery around the same time. Uh, things just went slightly different for me. Um, I first became a fan back when I was a kid watching James Bond reruns on TV in the 80s. And yes, uh, if you're a regular listener, you might have noticed I spent a lot of time watching reruns in the 80s. <laughs> uh, but I'm just assuming other kids did that too. Um, but anyway, um, it was the Connery films I think I saw first. And then Roger Moore from the 70s. Uh, my dad really liked the Roger Moore films. And, and so when those were on, we definitely watched them. I think. I think the only Timothy Dalton film I saw was License to Kill, and I don't think I've seen Lazenby's film from 1969. If I'm honest, though, despite all of that, I was only a moderate James Bond fan. 
Uh, I like the films, but I, I wouldn't have listed them among my favorites as a child. Kind, kind of like how Star Trek uh, really became mine when The Next Generation came out in 1987, and the original series was more like my dad's Star Trek. So, too, did I need my own James Bond before I became a mega fan, and that didn't happen until 1995 with Goldeneye and Pierce Brosnan. But that is not to say that I don't have a greater respect for Sean Connery's work now that I'm an adult. Watching these films in a row all these years later, I have a totally different perspective on them. And I not only like them more, I appreciate them more for what they brought to the table. But we're talking about back when I first became a fan. So as far as who my favorite James Bond is, I still have to go with Craig. But Connery has totally moved up from third place to second place since my rewatch. That's uh, totally fair. And I can totally understand why you feel that way. Um, I got into Connery much earlier than you did, which may have made a difference. Still, I think the way you described your early experiences with Bond is how I felt about Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton. Um, I can't really speak for Lord George Lazenby since I still haven't seen on Her Majesty's Secret Service. But uh, to be fair, though, I think um, Dalton probably took over the role too early in his career. I mean, he's become a vastly better actor since leaving the Bond films. Uh, but I digress on that. Um, I'm in general agreement with you that uh, Brosnan was the best classic style Bond since Connery. But I'll hold off on more detailed thoughts until we cover him properly. Um, I generally go uh, Connery, Craig, and then Brosnan as a solid third. So once again, I think we arrive in roughly the same place, even if we come at it from different directions. <laughs> it seriously baffles me how often that happens to us. It doesn't happen all of the time, but it seems like more often than not, we take different roads to the same place. <laughs> <laughs> but let's get into the Sean Connery Bond films. Uh, Dr. No, the very first James Bond movie ever, uh, came out in 1962, directed by Terrence Young. It was adapted by Richard Maybaum, Joanna Hardwood, and Berkeley Mather from the 1958 novel of the same name by Ian Fleming. Uh, Maybaum comments on how Hardwood really worked as a script doctor on Dr. No and helped put things more in line with the British character. Hardwood herself said that it, her scripts for both Dr. No and From Russia with Love followed Ian Fleming's novels very closely. It should be noted that although Dr. No was the first Ian Fleming novel uh, adapted into film, Dr. No was technically the sixth book in Ian Fleming's James Bond series. In actuality, Casino Royale from 1953 was the first book, uh, but we wouldn't get a version of Casino Royale until five years later in 1967. And if I'm honest, uh, we wouldn't get a good version until 2006 when Daniel Craig did it. Uh, but there's a reason they didn't do Casino Royale first. Ian Fleming sold Harry Saltzman the rights to all of the James Bond novels except Casino Royale and Thunderball for $50,000. After that, and making a partnership with Albert Broccoli, they created two companies, Don Jack, uh, which was to hold the rights to the films, and Eon Productions, which was to produce them. Broccoli and Saltzman would, would work together until 1975, when tensions during the filming of The Man with the Golden Gun led to an angry and bitter split between them, and Saltzman sold his shares of Don Jack to United Artists. Hmm, that's interesting. I always wondered why they started with Dr. No instead of Casino Royale, as that was the first of the Bond novels. But the rights issues you're talking about explains why we never got a proper Casino Royale until uh, Daniel Craig to uh, The Reign is Bond. I do remember that there was that 67 Casino Royale film with David Niven since he brought it up. But from my understanding, it was more of a spoof than a film that uh, took the character seriously um, or the book seriously. 
Not that the Connery films were hugely serious, but they respected the character of James Bond at the very least. Um, all in all, it seems like Broccoli turned out to have the right approach with Bond. I mean, so much so that the franchise is still in the family to this day. He certainly seems to have played his cards right, despite their bitter parting between him and Saltzman. However, it must have complicated things to have united artists in control of half the rights. Uh, but back to Dr. No and Ian Fleming's novels. Uh, the film Dr. No does make references to threads from both earlier and later books from Ian Fleming's novels, such as Spectre, which was not originally introduced in the novels until 1961's Thunderball. And speaking of Thunderball, producers Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli actually wanted to do Thunderball as the first James Bond movie, but it was tied up in a court case over plagiarism in 1961 that I will get into later. So why did they add Spectre into Dr. No? Well, I found out. Uh, while the James Bond franchise would be associated with the Cold War even after it was over to some extent, Saltzman and Broccoli introduced Spectre as a substitute for the Soviet Union in the story of hopes of avoiding commenting on the international political situation. As a speculative side note, I think they also chose Spectre to replace the Soviet Union because they wanted to make Thunderball and couldn't. It is also entirely possible that the reason they wanted to start with Thunderball was because they wanted to make said substitution for the USSR. Uh, but let's talk about the stars for a second. Uh, Dr. No stars the great Sean Connery as James Bond again. Ursula Andres plays Honey Ryder, the first Bond girl. Uh, Joseph Wiseman is the archetypal villain, Dr. Julius No. And Jack Lord plays Felix Leiter, a CIA operative sent to liaise with James Bond while he's in Kingston. Dr. No was produced by Ian Productions, Harry Salzman, and Albert R. Broccoli, as usual. You would see the Soviet Union brought up from time to time in the Bond films, at least until it finally fell. Uh, they may have used Spectre when they wanted to be more delicate about what they wanted to say, but I think Spectre is a good evergreen threat for Bond because they're that subversive organization that's always standing against Bond's values. Um, Bond has a lot of flaws, but he's loyal to crown and country, and he'll always fight to defend those things. Spectre also was an influence on practically every made-up alphabet terrorist organization in fiction, but especially groups like Hydra and Cobra. Um, I'll also add that I felt like it made sense that Dr. No would have made alliances with Spectre for their mutual advantage. I mean, Spectre likes to use layers of different threats to throw people off of Bofeld's trail, and Dr. No would have found Spectre's resources useful to his own schemes. It seemed like a partnership that suited each other's goals at the time. I mean, I don't know that they were completely in sync, and I don't think No was necessarily a direct agent of Blofeld, but he was definitely a useful asset to them. I was under the impression that Spectre was like a conglomerate of big-name players on the national or global stage, uh, watched over by a board of their superiors. So, so what you're describing there about Dr. No sounds accurate to me. Uh, Dr. No was certainly a big enough player in the game that Spectre would have taken him in, but not so much that he would have been, had a seat at the table. But he clearly had some standing with them as he was in a position to offer Bond a place in Spectre. Um, I, I, there's no mention of him like uh, talking to Spectre about that. He's just like, hey, you want to do this? Um, but all in all, I like how you described that. Uh, they were in a position to be mutually beneficial to one another. And honestly, I think 95% of Spectre is likely made up of such relationships. It sure seems that way. And we'll talk a bit more about that when we get to the sequels. But let's get in the actual story of Dr. No. Uh, the movie opens in Jamaica with the murder of a man called Strangways, who turns out to be an asset for British intelligence. 
Um, the assassins also attacked Strangway's house, which is a British listening point run by the dead man's secretary, uh, who also conveniently ends up dead. It, it turns out that all of this was done to steal uh, Strangway's files on Dr. No, presumably to cover No's trail. And then uh, Bond is called in unexpectedly to investigate the death of Strangways, um, who was helping the CIA investigate a possible threat to Cape Canaveral's rocket launch. Uh, Bond is immediately intercepted by a fake welcoming car working for Dr. No's people. But Bond is onto the ruse and he confronts the driver and he uses a cyanide capsule to kill himself rather than talk. Um, Bond investigates Strangways on the island. He discovers his CIA connections, um, including an American agent named Felix Leiter in his own assets. Um, including Quarrel, a boatsman who had worked with Strangways. Now, it turns out that Strangways had gone to an island called Crab Key to take some soil samples, and then he left them with a metallurgist named Professor Dent. The problem is that Dent uh, turns out to be an agent of Dr. No, who orders him to take out Bond. Uh, Bond eventually takes out Dent's agents, including Strangways' assassins and Miss Taro, uh, who was poisoning as a secretary at uh, the British government house. Uh, Bond confronts Dent, and it turns out the real reason why Strangways had to die is that he realized the soil sample on Crab Key were radioactive. Uh, this leads Bond and Coral to head to Crab Key to investigate what's there. Uh, Coral, of course, is reluctant given that there are legends of dragons living on Crab Key. Now, when Bond reaches Crab Key, they split up, and he discovers a woman collecting sea cells who turns out to be Honey Ryder, and she's the daughter of a marine biologist. Uh, they meet up with Coral, but um, Dr. No's people are a step behind them. After Bond stalks and kills a pursuer in the swamp, uh, they're forced to go further inland to invade pursuit. This turns out to be a trap because they finally discover what the dragon is. It's a high-powered armored tank with flamethrowers. <laughs> Quarrel is killed and Bond and Honey end up getting captured. And then uh, they're decontaminated because of the radiation exposure uh, from outside. And then they're brought to Dr. No, uh, who had hoped to recruit Bond into Spectre, like you mentioned. But Bond refuses and Bond is thrown into a dungeon deep in the complex. Um, from there, he escapes, sabotages the equipment, and kills Dr. No before escaping the island with Honey before everything blows up. So let's talk about how this movie set the tone for what Bond would become. <laughs> sure thing, Steve. I, I, I just have to comment really quickly on the dragon thing. I, I thought that made the people seem really simple that thought that, that we're talking about it being a dragon there. Uh, but that, yeah. that's a whole other thing i guess um being the first james bond film uh dr no really established some things that the series would be known for like the introduction of james bond viewed through the barrel of a gun as well as the stylized title sequence uh both of which were created by maurice binder granted in dr no the title sequence is comparatively mild side by side with later films in the franchise uh but it definitely became something bond films are known for uh let's not forget the iconic theme music everyone associates with James Bond that was first introduced in Dr. No. Uh, production designer Ken Adams established an elaborate visual style that also went on to be one of the hallmarks of the franchise. And as a quick side note on the topic of things established by Dr. No, uh, Norman Wanstall created the muffled sound that is used for the silencer Bond uses in Dr. No, which is not in fact what a gun with a suppressor on it sounds like. And that has been, been copied so many times that there are people who actually believe that that is what a gun with a silencer on it sounds like. It's been used quite a few times in a number of films, and it probably is the definitive muzzled gunshot sounding film. Now, one of the other things that the movie did was that it set the visual tone for the movies that followed. And definitely a point that set Bond apart is the stylish opening credit scenes with very distinct musical intros. 
Um, while the one for Dr. No isn't that elaborate, I, I think it did establish the foundation that allowed later filmmakers to experiment with that style. Although I will say that with Dr. No in specific, it gets a little goofy after you get the classic moment with Bond shooting at the camera. <laughs> because from there, the movie gets into this weird Calypso version of three blind mice set in Jamaica, and it gets a bit silly. <laughs> but once the movie introduces Bond and gets the mission in Jamaica going, it settles into the traditional Bond style, and it works well. That it does. And you're right about Dr. No laying the groundwork. It is not what we would come to know and love as Bond fans, but you can certainly see the seeds that were planted in Dr. No, and they clearly start taking root by From Russia With Love. Uh, but we'll get into that in a bit. You know, when we were doing the top 10 Perfect 10 episode, we talked about our favorite Bonds a bit. But one thing I mentioned that I really liked about Craig is that you really get that tough guy vibe from him. And I really like that about Sean Connery, too. And Dr. No is one of the reasons I see Sean Connery's Bond as a tough guy. I'm thinking of that scene where the agent was posing as a chauffeur and he tries to lead Bond into a trap, but Bond flips the table on him. Bond was absolutely in control of that situation in the car and whooped that agent's ass for a minute when they got out the car. <laughs> Connery makes you believe he is that badass. Absolutely, and I love that scene too. Um, I think it's easy to dismiss Connery's toughness or the, on the surface because he's known for being the suave ladies man type. But when he gets in a proper fight in these films, Connery does not play around. Yeah, But I think that makes sense. I mean, it shows that his bond is some real depth. And even if he oozes charm on the surface, he is all business when he runs into enemy agents. I mean, there are times when he seems to even enjoy getting into fisticuffs, and I like that about Bob. <laughs> he does not mess around when people try to kill him, and he's serious about his job, even if he sometimes comes around across as frivolous. How uh, Bond takes his job very seriously, even even if he enjoys the frills. Um, he is both smooth as hell and tough as nails, but there is more to him than even that. One thing I like about Dr. No, I really appreciated the attention to the spy craft and detail. Uh, granted, I have only read the comic book uh, adaptation of Ian Fleming's Casino Royale novel uh, from Dynam by Dynamite Entertainment, uh, but I have been told that is a much more faithful uh, to Fleming's story than the Bond in the films. Uh, one of the ways that it was more faithful was the spycraft and observations of James Bond. I mean, it was crazy how many things he noticed and was aware of at any given moment about all kinds of things going on around him. I see the kind of things going on in Dr. No. It may seem like a, a little thing, but Bond taking off his shoes so as not to make news, uh, noise as he walked across the wooden floor was spot on stuff as far as the awareness of a double O agent. Also, putting the hair across the closet door and uh, the fingerprint powder on the case. Uh, these are the kind of tricks of the trade that really make Dr. No feel authentic. One criticism I have <laughs> is when Bond put on the radiation suit and basically blew up Dr. No's place uh, by turning up the danger level on the reactor. I mean, the danger level? Come on. That, that that really could have been explained better, and it's something I would expect to see like on a Saturday morning cartoon if that was even still a thing. Uh, but that is a small blemish, I think. And oh, as a totally random side note, I'm just gonna say it right now: I want Doctor No's lair. That house is awesome. <laughs> all in all, I think Doctor No is definitely one of the best films in the franchise. Uh, but what are your final thoughts on the film, Steve? Uh, Dr. No is a cool film that is a little rough around the edges, but it perfectly establishes what a good Bond should be, a film should be about. I mean, you get Bond doing what he does best, taking out bad guys, infiltrating enemy organizations, sneaking around, seducing Bond girls. 
I mean, you have the big epic villainous threat who represents a danger to queen and country. You get exotic locales, danger around every corner, and insidious traps as Bond's enemies try to kill him constantly. I mean, the movie establishes Bond perfectly um, as well, using the card game to set up his character. Uh, there was room to improve, and your point, your, your criticisms are right on the money, I think, for me. Um, and the series would certainly do uh, improvements with later films, but the movie gave you what you needed if you were a fan of the character. I'm I'm a little surprised that you did not like it more than that. Um, but 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 let's talk about the second James Bond film uh, from Russia with Love. Uh, the studio was on ball with on the ball with this one. I mean, with the success of Doctor No, United Artists immediately greenlit another film and doubled the one million dollar budget Doctor No had for the new film. And I'll be damned if they did not have a second James Bond film the very next year in 1963 called From Russia With Love, starring Sean Connery as James Bond once again. And he was not the only one to return. In fact, excluding those that died, most of the original cast returned for the film, including Eunice Gason as Sylvia Trench, Bond's semi-regular girlfriend. I'll admit I did not catch that she was the same character when I was watching these as a kid, uh, but her presence brings an added level of uh, story continuity to the second film. Uh, Bernard Lee came back to play M, uh, Chief of British Intelligence. Uh, Louis Maxwell plays Miss Moneypenny, M's secretary once again. Uh, Daniela Bianchi plays uh, Tatiana Romanova, a Soviet consulate clerk and Bond's love interest. Ian Fleming based her character on an actual w World War II SOE named Christine Granville. However, Bianchi's voice is not what we hear. Uh, Bianchi's dialogue was dubbed by an uncredited Barbara Jeffert. Uh, last but not least, Robert Shaw played Daniel Red Grant, a Spectre assassin specifically trained to kill James Bond. Okay. The interesting thing about Bond is that uh, continuity ends up not being a huge thing in the series in the long term. Uh, you get a lot of the same characters coming back, but they all end up being recast and you don't see a ton of references to previous films. But in the early films, you do see some attention to continuity, probably because they were still drawing directly on the Ian Fleming novels. Uh, the most consistent characters tend to be Bond, Moneypenny, M, and Q, though M especially tends to go through different actors and even different characters. Some of this is probably that those characters draw the most directly on Fleming's real-world war experience. So uh, why don't we get into the background on the production from, uh, from Russia with Love, Mike? Sure, Steve. Like Dr. No, From Russia with Love was produced by Albert R. Broccoli, Harry Saltzman's Eon Productions. Terrence Young came back to direct the film, and it was once again written by Richard Maybaum and Joanna Hardwood, based on Ian Fleming's 1957 novel of an almost identical name. The difference being that uh, the novel was From Russia comma with love and the film just takes out the comma another thing that is like the first movie is that this film too is out of order compared to ian fleming's novels uh from russia with love is actually the fifth book in fleming series which means they did the previous book in the series after starting with number six uh but again with the incorporation of specter in the very first film uh something that isn't introduced until the ninth book in the series they are kind of all over the place at this point um Suffice it to say for now that uh, the film version of From Russia with Love is different from the novel uh, in some respects because of how United Artists uh, decided to do the blending of the story. Uh, there is a reason they went with From Russia with Love as a sequel to Dr. No. Check this out. President John F. Kennedy's listed Fleming's novel From Russia with Love among his 10 favorite books of all time in Life magazine. And that's why producers Broccoli and Saltzman chose it. But check out this rather dark note. 
From Russia with Love was the last film President Kennedy saw at the White House on November 20th, 1963, before going to Dallas. Interesting. I, I knew that From Russia with Love was Kennedy's favorite Bond novel and one of his favorite books. I didn't know that the film was the last movie he saw, and that does cast a pall on things. Still, it's, a, it's good that Kennedy was able to see it. Um, I seem to remember JFK saying that he enjoyed the film version as well, but it is true that they filmed the books out of order. Um, you're right that From Russia with Love was the fifth of the novels in publication order, and they just bumped it up. I don't think that it really makes a huge difference, to be honest. I mean, except for a few uh, films that are directly connected, like some of the Craig films, the Bond films can generally be watched in almost any order and doesn't make a huge difference. I, I always watch them in order, so I, I have no basis of comparison there, really, beyond my experience as a kid watching the reruns. Uh, but I think you're right about the films only occasionally being sequential. Uh, for instance, From Russia with Love is one of those sequential films, as it picks up not long after Dr. No. But before we get into the story, let me give you a synopsis of the film. Agent 007 is battling a secret crime organization known as Spectre, who, in response to Bond killing Dr. No in Jamaica, have not only started training agents specifically to kill James Bond, they have sent one after him, an Irish assassin named Donald Red Grant. Grant's assignment is to ensure that Bond dies after they get a coveted cryptography device known as a Lecter. Spectre operative Rosa Klebb, former Smirsh colonel, is assigned to oversee the mission and ensure Grant can carry out Bond's assassination at the right moment. Set the trap, Kleb recruits a cipher clerk at the consulate, Tatiana Romanova, who unwittingly assists in the plan, tricking Romanova into believing Kleb is still working for Smirsh. Tatiana contacts MI6 about having Bond help her defect from the Soviet Union, and while they think it's a trap, and it is, Bond agrees to meet her in Istanbul, and all sorts of madness ensues after after that. But after saving Bond's life so that he could stay alive long enough to get the lector, Grant kills one of Bond's contacts named Nash and poses as him to get the lector and kill Bond aboard the Orient Express. Grant initially defeats Bond and, and explains that Spectre has been behind it all and that Tatiana is an unwitting pawn. Bond gets the upper hand and kills Grant by tricking Grant into setting off a booby trap in his briefcase and escapes with Tatiana and the Lecter using Grant's escape route. Learning of Grant's death and Bond's survival, Spectre's chairman, number one, has Kronstein executed for his plan's disastrous failure, as Spectre had promised to sell back the Lecter to the Russians. Kleb is ordered to recover it and kill Bond. Kleb sneaks into their room in Venice, disguised as a maid, and takes them by surprise. Kleb orders Romanova to leave the room while holding Bond at gunpoint. Romanova then re-enters, tackling Kleb and knocking the pistol to the ground. Kleb Kleb and Bond struggle, and Romanova picks up the pistol and kills Kleb. Yeah, uh, I will note one thing, and that is that the number one clearly is Blofeld, but as an aside, I'm pretty sure that uh, Rosa Kleb was the inspiration for uh, Frau Farbicin, uh, Dr. Evil's main henchwoman in Austin Powers. But uh, Kleb was made fairly memorable among the earlier Bond villains, even though she was a bit of a stereotypical Russian villain in some respects. Anyway, there are a couple of things that I really love about this movie that I'll mention off the bat. Uh, firstly, I dig that the cold open of this movie shows Bond seemingly being killed by Spectre, only for it to be a Spectre training exercise and that the Bond they killed was a fake. Um, most Bond cold opens exist to make Bond look cool and establish him in media ray. This one starts off a bit dark, where Bond appears to lose, uh, while also setting up the villainous plan, and I love that. 
Um, I also think it's clever that the main Bond girl is being used as a honey trap, which actually is a good way to try to set Bond up. I mean, Bond is a good agent, but he has definite weaknesses and indulgences, and it makes sense that Bond's enemies would try to capitalize on them. Of course, the fact that Tatiana generally, genuinely falls for Bond ends up being the undoing of the whole scheme. The, the twists and turns in this movie are cleverly executed, and I think that's why this film tends to hold up pretty well. Uh, it is a very fun film, and I think it holds up great. Um, I will also say that I 100% think that Cleb was the inspiration for the Austin Powers character. The resemblance is just too close to not be. Uh, but I just have to comment on that fight between the two gypsy women. Uh, that was horribly choreographed by people who have clearly never seen two women fight before. <laughs> I mean, maybe girls were different in 1963, uh, but I've seen women bite, claw, punch, and kick the crap out of each other between the times they were pulling each other's hair. I've even seen an attempted strangling once. Uh, <laughs> my point is that this is not how women fight. I mean, it was like they were doing their best to not to hurt one another. It was supposed to be this deadly battle by how they were building it up, and it, it just wasn't. I, I don't know... But if I was a woman, I would be offended at that portrayal. Uh, men's fights certainly aren't anything like that. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you there. I mean, it is a bit of an I'll harm you moment in the words of uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. I mean, the actresses probably were trying not to hurt each other too badly. But when that comes across as too obvious on screen, something's definitely wrong there. I mean, especially if you look at some of the crazy things that you see even in things like women's wrestling matches. And even if they're faking, it could still look really intense. It's all about selling the moves, and it just wasn't there. Uh, I'm also not sure this movie did gypsy culture that great of a service either, um, though I don't know enough to say that for absolute certain. I mean, cultural representation was never this series' strong suit in the early films. I mean, You Only Live Twice is just one unfortunate example. So I wouldn't be surprised if they got it pretty far wrong. <laughs> So we're in agreement about the gypsies or, or, or Romani people. Uh, that was a very outside looking in portrayal. But as you said, that kind of thing was was just not an issue back then. Um, but overall, I really enjoyed From Russia With Love. I, I liked the more complicated story and I liked the continued focus on spycraft and not just gadgets uh, like Bond thoroughly checking the rooms and other things. Uh, not all of the Bond films take the time to show this stuff and I'm really appreciating seeing it in these first films. I also like that Spectre actually trained agents specifically to kill James Bond and sent one after him. Uh, the whole time I was trying to figure out why he kept saving Bond, but that scene on the train made it all clear. Also, as far as bad guy speeches go, uh, I liked how that was delivered. It didn't feel quite so megalomaniacal. Uh, also, that was that was a satisfying fight between the two super spies at the end there. Although, I am wondering what Sylvia Trench is going to think about Tatiana after the ending of the film. <laughs> but it's not like Honey Rider stuck around either. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, this is where you start really seeing the girl of the week formula for Bond girls. I mean, you don't see too many girls that stick around consistently, aside from Moneypenny, and not too many that stick in Bond's mind either, uh, until Bond's wife and on Her Majesty's Secret Service and then Vesper Lind and Casino Royale. I mean, Sylvia Trench was a nice nod to Dr. No, though, because we at least got to see how their affair started in that film. But um, I do think From Russia With Love is one of the best of the early films as well. I mean, I love the cold open. I think the villains actually have a pretty good plan in this movie. Many times you get Bond films where they really don't have a good strategy for dealing with Bond, but the psychological warfare angle really works in this film. You get some nice Cold War thriller elements with Smirsh and some nice Hitchcockian suspense where you, where you wonder which way Tatiana will turn at the end. I mean, 
we know who and what she truly is, but Bond doesn't at first, and that ratchets up the suspense really well. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed this one, and I think it certainly is among the better Bond films in the series. So let's dive into our next film, Mike. Sure. Uh, so in 1964, the third James Bond film, Goldfinger, hit theaters. And you know what? I'm picking up on something here that I hadn't noticed before. The first four Bond films came out in each successive year, 62, 63, 64, and 65. That might not seem like much all on its own. But a decade later, uh, the Planet of the Apes sequels, with the exception of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, all came out one year after the previous film. Just into the very next decade, you could wait two or three years, sometimes more for a sequel. So the trend had clearly started dying out by then, horror films excluded. Uh, but it seems like it had lasted a good while before it died out and wasn't picked up again until Disney started making Star Wars movies. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is impressive. I mean, it is pretty hard to maintain a pace like that. And I think it only got more difficult as movies became more complicated and expensive to make. Um, I also remember, though, that the first few Paranormal Activity films came out pretty much every year, but those were probably a lot cheaper and easier to film than big-budget blockbusters. But I will add that uh, Goldfinger also has one more thing in common with Planet of the Apes. They had the same screenwriter. Uh, Paul Dean co-wrote this film before co moving on to do the Apes sequels, starting with Beneath the Planet of the Apes. I mean, he probably made a bigger mark on that franchise, but Goldfinger is one of the best remembered of the early Bond films. Some might even say the gold standard, if you'll forgive the pun. So uh, why don't we get into how this film got started? Sure, Steve. And and as a dad joke connoisseur, I think that pun was absolutely necessary. <laughs> but back to Goldfinger. Um, 1964's Goldfinger is based on the 1959 novel by Ian Fleming with the same name. In the last film, From Russia with Love, the studio decided to go back to book number five in Fleming's series. But in the third film, they jumped back up to number seven in the series. My understanding is that they actually wanted to do on Her Majesty's Secret Service next, which would have jumped to the 11th book in the franchise. Uh, but there was not enough time to prepare for shooting in Switzerland, and so the adaptation was put off. Their next pick was Thunderball, but there was that whole thing going on about Thunderball at, at the time in the court. Uh, it's a big, long story, but while this will take a minute to get through, um, I promise you this is the short version. Um, suffice it to say that in 1958, uh, Ian Fleming and his friend Ivar Bryce, uh, along with Bryce's friend Ernest Cuneo, and Irish writer-director Kevin McClory, formed Xanadu Productions unofficially. By May of 1959, they had all worked together to come up with the story outline for Thunderball. The story went through many revisions and drafts and was still a work in progress. However, when McClory's latest film did not do well, Fleming was no longer in impressed with McClory and actually brought on an experienced screenwriter, Jack Whittingham. But McClory kept working on the project, and by December of 1959, he and Whittingham came up with a script called Longitude 78 West that was ready to shoot. Uh, Fleming liked the script, but he changed the name to Thunderball. In January of 1960, Fleming let McClory, McClory know that he intended to deliver the screenplay to MGM with the recommendation from both Fleming and Bryce that McClory be a producer on the film. He also said that if MGM refused because McClory's involvement, then McClory should either sell his services to MGM, back out of the deal, or file suit in court. 
Then Ian Fleming proceeded to write the Thunderball novel based on the script between January and March of 1960. When McClory and Whittingham, who had written the story with Ian Fleming, read an advanced copy of Thunderball in 1961, they immediately petitioned the court to stop it from being published, but they were unable to stop it. However, McClory pursued further action in 1963, and what, ha what ended up happening in court was that McClory and Whittingham won the filming rights as well as the rights to the screenplay and Fleming was given the rights to the, right the novel, although it had to be recognized as being based on the screenplay treatment by Kevin McClory, Jack Whittingham, and Fleming. All of that garbage to explain that there was a court case that forbade the studio from making Thunderball, the third James Bond movie, as well as stopping them from making it the first James Bond movie, as I mentioned earlier. Hence, Goldfinger. That sounds like a proper legal nightmare, and I'm amazed they got this <laughs> sorted out in time to do the Thunderball film when they did. I have to say that Fleming has a knack for Bond film titles, too. Thunderball sounds much better than the original title. Um, so it's interesting that On Her Majesty's Secret Service was on the docket for this film, but then they held back on it until Connery was ready to retire from the Bond franchise. I mean, this is not a knock on George Lazenby in any way, but I can't help but wonder what On Her Majesty's Secret Service would have been like with Sean Connery as James Bond. That seems like a huge missed opportunity to me, but uh, once again, I digress. You know... Uh... <laughs> Uh, Adam West uh, said that in the 60s, there were three Bs. There was the Beatles, there was Bond, and there was Batman. <laughs> and in the 60s, mm -hmm. Connery was definitely the guy to go with and uh, as far as who to play James Bond. And I can't help but think that Honor Majesty's Secret Service would have been better with Connery. However, I, I in my opinion, by 1983's Never Say Never Again, I think Connery had kind of lost his touch. He had just kind of grown out of the character, but that's just my personal opinion. So let's get back to the third film. Uh, Goldfinger was once again produced by Abelard Broccoli and Harry Saltzman's Eon Production and was the first of four Bond films directed by Guy Hamilton, although he would come back to do that after Thunderball. Once again, Sean Connery came back as the MI6 agent 007, but there were some new faces, including two new Bond girls with Honor Blackman as Bond girl Pussy Galore and Shirley Eaton as the iconic Jill Masterson. C.C. Linder replaces Jack Lord from, uh, from Dr. No as Felix Leiter. The villain Arik Goldfinger was played by Gert Frobe. Richard Maybaum, who co-wrote the previous films returned to adapt Goldfinger. Um, apparently there was this rather large plot hole in the novel where Goldfinger actually attempts to steal all of the gold in Fort Knox and that would just be impossible. Uh, in fact, Bond himself points this out in the film, noting that 15 billion in gold bullion weighs 10,500 tons and it would take 60 men 12 days to load 200 trucks to take it away. And at most, Goldfinger would have two hours before the U.S. military descended upon him. Maybaum fixed the plot hole by having Goldfinger irradiate the gold instead. However, Harry Saltzman brought in Paul Dean to revise Maybaum's script as he thought it was too American. But according to director Guy Hamilton, Paul Dean brought out the British side of things. But of course, that wasn't the end either, as Connery disliked the draft, so Maybaum returned. 
Uh, but check this out. It was Paul Dean that suggested the, the pre-credit sequence uh, be an action scene with no relevance to the actual plot. Uh, Maybaum, however, based the pre-credit scene on the opening scene of the novel where Bond is waiting at a Miami airport contemplating his recent killing of a Latin American drug smuggler. Uh, but it, it was the quality of the blending of Maybaum's and Dean's script and outline for Goldfinger that became the blueprint for future Bond films. However, with all of this talking about the story, we have not given a synopsis for the Goldfinger film. So why don't you handle this one, Steve? Sure thing. Um, I'll briefly mention the cold open where Bond goes to Jamaica to destroy a drug operation that's being used to finance revolutions. Uh, Bond goes back to his room to deal with a girl, I mean, who's presumably his informant, who it turns out is working with the bad guys. Uh, Bond, girl, Bond takes out both her and an enemy agent who's been sent to murder him, and he goes on to his next assignment. Uh, that assignment sends Bond to, Bond to Miami Beach, where he's assigned to observe Oric uh, Goldfinger, a British national who has amassed $20 million in gold. Um, so Bond meets up with uh, Felix Leiter, who's also interested in Goldfinger. While staying at the same hotel, Bond notices that Goldfinger is scanning one of the other visitors at cards. And so he heads into Goldfinger's hotel room, and he meets Jill Masterson, who uh, Goldfinger hired to help him cheat and to be seen with him. Uh, Bond breaks up the scam and seduces Masterson, which causes Goldfinger to retaliate. Uh, Goldfinger sends his henchman Oddjob to kill Masterson, presumably with the idea of framing Bond for the murder. After being knocked unconscious by Oddjob, uh, Bond finds Jill dead, covered in gold paint and dead by suffocation. Um, M is displeased by the whole turn of events because it caused Goldfinger to escape back to Europe with no real leads to his operation. So um, Bond and M meet up with the head of the Bank of England, who helps set up Bond's new cover as a gold trader. Uh, Bond meets Goldfinger under the cover of a friendly golf game, but as previously established in the Miami Beach scam, uh, Goldfinger likes to cheat. Bond expects this, though, and he manages to turn the tables on Goldfinger, leading him to warn Bond against interfering with him again. Bond doesn't take the hint, and he tracks Goldfinger to Switzerland, but he's not alone, as there is another interested party. Along the way, Bond runs into another girl who happens to be Jill's Masterson's sister, Tilly. Uh, she tries to kill Goldfinger with a sniper rifle, but she's a bad shot, and she almost hits Bond instead. So Bond eventually confronts Jill, gets some information from her, and then they break into Goldfinger's refinery. Um, the sister gets killed, too, and then Bond ends up getting captured after hearing about Goldfinger's Operation Grand Plan. Bond gets into that classic exchange with Goldfinger while strapped up to a laser, convincing Goldfinger finally to spare him. And eventually we see what Goldfinger's really up to. He wants to irradiate all the gold in Fort Knox with a Chinese dirty bomb, rendering it all unusable, which drives up the price of the gold in Goldfinger's possession. So with the help of uh, Pussy Galore, who is uh, Goldfinger's pilot and the main Bond girl of this film, Bond eventually gets free and disrupts the plan, uh, killing Oddjob and Goldfinger in the process. Now, I like this movie quite a bit, and I think it's Jill generally holds up really well, even though it's definitely a movie of its era. I mean, there's a shift in focus where you get uh, Hugh assigning what I call Chekhov's Arbery, where Bond gets cool uh, modified supercars and devices that just all happen to be perfectly useful at the right moments of the plot. Uh, this is also one of the first appearances of the late, great Desmond Llewellyn as Q, and he remains in that role for decades until the end of the Brosnan era. The dynamic between Bond and Q here establishes their relationship for many years. And I like that Goldfinger is credible as a villain and not yet another Spectre agent like we see in most of these early films. But what are your thoughts on Goldfinger, Mike? I have read that Goldfinger was heralded as the film in the franchise where Bond really came into focus. 
comparatively, Goldfinger seems to be where the focus started to shift away from Bond spycraft as seen in Dr. No and from Russia with Love and go over to the gadgets and tech, which modern audiences are more familiar with. Uh, granted, it had not fully taken over at this point, nor had the tongue-in-cheek humor, uh, but I think this is where it started. If I'm honest, there are parts of Goldfinger that I really enjoy, uh, but Goldfinger was a step down from Dr. No and from Russia with Love, in my opinion. Um, but I can't deny the film's commercial success. In fact, we even got the very first officially licensed James Bond toy, the Aston Martin DB5 car from Car Corgi Toys, which became the biggest selling toy of 1964 because of Goldfinger. That's cool. And, and I love how the DB5 toy took off because of Goldfinger. I mean, the DB5 is a classic and iconic movie car, and I love it. Uh, I think it's, I'm beginning though, to see where we start having different opinions about the early films. Not that I think you're necessarily wrong. Uh, more to that, we're coming at it for, with different tastes in mind. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but considering that you're more of a fan of the later films and especially the Craig approach, I get the feeling that you're more interested in seeing Bond being a proper spy with a more grounded approach, which I think is fair and a totally legitimate position to take. I mean, I don't mind that take myself from time to time, which is why I think we agree on the first two films. And there have been times when a change in tone of direction have lost me, so I can respect that if that doesn't work for you. But honestly, just speaking for myself, I know Bond gets ridiculous and over the top with the later Connery films, and I can enjoy the tongue-in-cheek humor and the silliness for what it is. I mean, I don't want Bond to be totally slapstick or a farce. I mean, Austin Powers does that routine better anyway. But I don't mind the over-the-top supervillains, uh, Bond using ridiculous gadgets, or Bond meeting girls with the silliest names. I mean, it's an exaggerated take for sure, but it's a fun approach when it works. So I think that's part of the reason we're probably going to see the next film a bit differently too, and that's fine. So uh, let's talk about Thunderball. That's a totally respectable position, and I can see where you're coming from. Unfortunately, I think you're right about our different takes on Thunderball too. Um, I, I, I definitely came into this wanting to see a proper spy, uh, as you said, uh, but we'll get into that in a second. Um, with all the garbage over the rights to Thunderball finally out of the way in 1964, Thunderball finally came out in 1965 as the fourth James Bond film. Unlike all of the other James Bond films we're going to talk about over this three-part series, Thunderball was produced solely by Kevin McClory and executive produced by Eon Productions, Albert R. Broccoli, and Harry Saltzman. The story was, of course, by Whittingham, Fleming, and McClory, but the original screenplay credit is given to Whittingham. The actual screenplay was by Richard Maybaum, who worked on Goldfinger, and an English film stage and television writer named John Hopkins. Terrence Young, who had directed Dr. No and From Russia with Love, came back to direct his final James Bond film. Sean Connery, of course, comes back to play James Bond on the fourth time for Thunderball. Uh, Bernard Leed comes back to play M, as he does for the first 11 James Bond films. And, of course, up until he died, no one could play BQ except Desmond Llewellyn. So, obviously, he came back, and, and he would uh, continue to come back for the first 17 Bond films. Uh, Louis Maxwell played uh, Money Penny once again, as she would in the first 14 James Bond films. Uh, Rick Van Nutter uh, replaces CeCe 
Linder from Goldfinger as Felix Leiter. It's like they just can't settle on an actor to play Leiter. Adolfo Seeley uh, plays Emilio Largo, uh, but he is voiced by Robert uh, Riety, and he was not the only one voiced uh, by someone else. Uh, Claudine Auger plays Dominique Domino Derval, uh, Largo's uh, mistress, but she is voiced by Nikki Vanderzil. Uh, Luciana Paluzzi uh, plays a specter agent named Fiona Volpe. Uh, Philip Locke plays Largus's personal assistant and primary henchman. As a quick side note, Thunderball was the first Bond film shot in Panavision and the first to have a running time of over two hours, two hours and ten minutes to be exact. In 1983, Warner Brothers released a second film adaptation of the novel under the title Never Say Never Again uh, with McClory as executive producer. Right. Uh, Never Say Never Again was basically a remake of this film, uh, that, that time with Kim Basinger as Domino. Uh, I do have some fond memories of it, especially the writing jokes about too many free radicals. But it isn't a huge personal favorite. I mean, you're right that Connery had run out of gas by then. But uh, to get back to Thunderball, I, I want to talk a bit about the cold open and the title sequence. The cold open is so over the top that it's ludicrous and awesome. <laughs> um, Bond arrives at a funeral of a Spectre agent named Colonel Beauvoir, working alongside a friend's agent. Um, Bond was after Beauvoir for killing a British agent, and at first it looks like he arrived too late uh, to do the job himself. Um, he watches the grieving widow and follows her home to her mansion, and this is where it starts getting weird. It turns out that the widow is, in fact, the disguised Colonel Beauvoir that Bond was assigned to assassinate. <laughs> Bond kills him with a fireplace poker, then escapes the mansion using a jetpack that just happens to be there. I'm not even kidding with this. He gets to the French agent, who meets him back at the Aston Martin, and then Bond uses the Aston Martin's rear water hoses to drive back their pursuer before it fades into the title sequence. <laughs> it's a ridiculous sequence of events. I mean, not least because it makes no sense why this dude would attend his own funeral dressed as his wife but you know what the unfitted scene is so much fun that i honestly don't care how silly it is this is pure rule of cool and i admit that up front um i'll also add that this is where you start getting the really elaborate opening titles with the memorable theme songs as well i mean this really started with goldfinger though i in that film i think it was shirley bassey singing that really carried it but with thunderball you have tom jones singing the theme song and this is honestly one of my favorite early bond themes as well uh, I feel like the instrumentals capture the spy genre better than a lot of the Bond themes do. And Jones does do some really strong vocals. You, you also get some really cool underwater effects in the opening titles. I mean, evoking the story while also being very stylistic. Uh, Goldbinger and Thunderball are the films that got that ball rolling. And this is why the opening titles keep getting crazier and more elaborate with each new Bond film. But why don't you talk about the main story of Thunderball, Mike? All right. Uh, here's a synopsis of the film. Led by the one-eyed mastermind Emilio Largo, number two inspector, they steal two atomic warheads from a NATO-protected Royal Air Force Avro Vulcan strategic jet bomber during a training exercise. With them, Largo threatens to destroy an unspecified city in either America or the United Kingdom if he is not paid one million pounds within seven days. And I can't help but see that guy with, his, with the pinky to his mouth when I read that <laughs> james bond is sent to recover the warheads from the heart of largo's lair in the bahamas facing underwater attacks from the sharks and men alike uh he must also convince domino derval largo's mistress to become a key ally which he does by revealing that largo had killed her brother 
Uh, Domino then helped Bond search the Disco Volante, uh, but she is captured by Largo and imprisoned. With the help of CIA agent Felix Leiter, they get the U.S. Coast Guard to intercept the Disco Volante crew and recover one of the bombs in the underwater battle. Bond pursues Largo and grabs hold of the Disco Volante as it, sh as it sheds its rear half, called a cocoon, to become a hydrofoil and escape. Bond gets on deck and sends the Disco Volante out of control while fighting Largo and his men. Largo gets the upper hand and is about to shoot Bond when Domino kills Largo and revenge after his hired nuclear physicist frees her. The trio quickly flees the Disco Volante just barely before it crashes into a wall of rock on an island and blows into pieces. Bomb and Domino are then retrieved out of an inflatable raft by a plane with the Fulton system. I don't know what it is about Bond that he keeps coming back to tropical islands. I mean, <laughs> Dr. No largely takes place in Jamaica. Uh, Goldfinger had a cold open set on a tropical island. And now we have this movie set in Nassau. I mean, you covered the plot nicely, so I'll leave it there. But I will say that this is the film where Spectre really starts to make a huge play for the world for the first time. And that makes this movie somewhat significant. Uh, the movies take their time gradually unmasking the threat of Spectre. And we still don't fully see Ernst uh, Stavro Blofeld here, who is the number one you see directing things while stroking his cat. But this is the first appearance of Blofeld in the films and who becomes Bond's nemesis. And make no mistake, Blofeld is absolutely the main villain pulling the strings behind Largo, Fiona, and Colonel Beauvoir, who is mentioned as number six of Spectre, though they didn't know that Bond had killed him. Uh, this movie gives you at least a decent hint of the threat uh, that Blofeld represents, even if he isn't fully shown until later films. Spectre is an interesting organization, and Thunderball drops some intriguing hits about the things going on behind the scenes with the villains. I did like the slow unveiling of Spectre. I think that that was definitely the way to go. But when it comes to Thunderball, I, I feel like I have to apologize, Steve. I honestly went into this really wanting to love the first four films because I know you liked them. Uh, but after watching Dr. No and From Russia With Love, I feel like I've seen the gold standard. Uh, I know this was called Thunderball, but I, I think it should have been called Underwater Ball. <laughs> I mean, I honestly don't mind underwater scenes, and they, they have never actually bothered me before watching Thunderball. <laughs> I think the biggest problem was the giant underwater fight between the Coast Guard and Largo's men. I mean, that was basically the big action sequence of the movie, and it just fell flat in my opinion. I had a really hard time getting into that, but but those things aside, it was okay. I, I just don't think the third and fourth film uh, lives up to the quality of the first two films. And is, uh, what's weird about that is that the budget for Thunderball was $9 million. Uh, <laughs> that's not much now, but consider that the first three Bond films all together only cost $6 million to make. Um, for me, I have to say that Dr. No and From Russia With Love are, are two of the best films in the franchise that I've seen. In fact, seeing them now has made me reevaluate how I see, see the other films. I feel like all the films that succeeded the first two, save for Craig, managed to capture individual traits of James Bond, like the one-liners, his smoothness, his tough guy demeanor. But you get all of that in the first two. Uh, again, I'm honestly not trying to take anything away from your enjoyment of the films. As I mentioned in another episode, I appreciate your love of the classics, and I totally respect your liking the films as much as you do. Uh, but, but, but what do you what do you think about that? See, what do you, what do you say? Um, I'll agree to the extent that Thunderball is not as good as the other three films we previously discussed. I mainly want to discuss this film because I prefer this one to the Connery films, the other Connery films that we didn't discuss, like Diamonds Are Forever and You Only Live Twice. 
Now, I can totally understand the big fight at the end not clicking for you. I mean, it can be sometimes hard to follow, especially if you're trying to keep track of where characters like Bond and Largo are. Um, I don't think that those moments bothered me as much as it did for you, but I'll put that down as a question of taste, which is totally fine. Um, for the most part, though, I think Thunderball uh, does stand up among most of the other Connery films. You do get uh, to see some of the internal politics with Inspector, uh, particularly the moments between Largo and Fiona, as well as the few scenes we see with Blofeld. Uh, Largo is a pretty sinister villain, and the, the movie only implies how nasty this guy gets. Uh, that it particularly shows in his treatment of Domino, who he basically groomed into his mistress. He set up her brother into a specter scheme and then murders him. And after that, he's willing to subject her to some brutal torture after she's caught with Bond's device. He feeds yeah. people to his pet sharks on a whim. This dude is just evil on another level. Um, I also like Fiona as a secondary villain because she seems to be playing her own game and it's never quite clear which side she comes down on until it's too late for her. Uh, the stakes for this movie are huge, including potentially nuclear Armageddon, with Bond racing against time to find the nuclear bombs while Spectre holds the world for ransom. Um, the Mardi Gras chase game was quite well done, with Bond alone and injured as he tries to slip away from Fiona and her henchmen. There are some also some good moments of tension in this film. I mean, I and, and I do really like that Domino is the one to finally kill Largo. It would have been so easy to give Bond the kill, but Domino was the one who suffered the most at Largo's hands, and she deserved to finish him off. Um, I acknowledge that this film has its weak points, but the good set, the good points offset them in view. That's totally fair, and I think you're right that it's just a matter of taste in the parts where we disagree. I'll be honest, I didn't know I had such strong feelings about it until the rewatch for this episode. <laughs> but I, I, I like that we were able to offer differing perspectives occasionally like this. I, I think the multiple perspectives add breadth to the show. Uh, but that about wraps up part one of our James Bond discussion on Sean Connery. Once again, I want to say thank you to our patrons who make this podcast possible. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.